0: Good Nero Shabbos, everybody. We begin the third sefer of the Torah, the third book in the Torah. And the first parsha in that book is Vayikra. And a fascinating parsha dealing with, it's called Torah Kohanim, the Torah that concerns the priestly class. And it's full of detail about various sacrifices. A few points about that before we uh, do some Pesach discussions. First of all, the word Vayikra is spelled with a small Aleph. And uh, there are many interpretations for that. First of what Aleph stands for, Ani, you know, number one. And Moshe was very, very humble. He was Anav Mikol Adam, he was the most humble. Uh, he wanted the small Aleph because without the Aleph, it's Vayikar, which means, and Hashem happened upon him, bumped into him, which is what was used when Hashem's connected with Bilam. And so Moshe was saying according to the midrash if you bumped into Bilam who also had ruach kodesh then why should I be so special relative to him therefore I don't need the aleph also um, relative to his relationship with Aharon who was the kohen and who was responsible for all of the uh, kahuna work being done in this parsha Moshe once again expressed his reluctance to take uh, the the uh, full shine of the of the stage while the work was being done by harun so it was a statement of great humility and the compromise between hashem and 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 moshe was we'll put the aleph in but it'll be small it's worth remembering that the word korban which means traditionally sacrifice comes directly from the word karov which means close and so sacrifices are viewed by the torah as a way to bring people close to hashem and now that we don't have Corbanot. in our time, we need to find other ways, small acts of kindness and, and, uh, and generosity of spirit to fill the gap and, and observe the mitzvot lovingly so that in our own way we can come closer to our tradition and our Yiddish guide. The skeptics would say that this is the beginning of the process of getting the Israelites used to the fact that you don't sacrifice people, children, as they did in the prevailing cultures. And so they took that same urge, instinct, and habit, and directed it into something more appropriate. And so animal sacrifice was instituted, which ultimately evolved into prayer. But there is something else about the korban that I wanted to mention, and that is that in fact, the korban takes perfection and turns it into destruction. We can only use perfect animals to be burned. We can only use fine quality flour in the flour and, and so on. So everything that's sacrificed in fire is basically a perfect, perf, perfect specimen, perfect example, which is immediately turned into ashes. And I think there's a profound insight into the human condition and the power of God. That in fact, only by, and, and in, the, uh, in the books about death and dying, Tuesdays with Murray and books like it, the, the, the common theme seems to be that it is only by truly understanding death and destruction that one can truly value and treasure life and perfection. That is a, a just a, a way that I think may help us to understand this phenomenon a little more clearly and more meaningfully. The second verse of the Parsha also has a beautiful interpretation. It says, Daber el-Bene Yisrael va'amar Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, Adam ki akriv mikem korban. When a person gives from among you a sacrifice. So it's not just the sacrifice where you give, but it's got to be mikem, which actually means from within you, from your deepest selves. And so the, the way to give in Judaism, not only korban, but generally to give, to give with a full heart, to give with full intent from the innermost core and not perfunctory giving, which obviously is, is qualitatively very different. Modern orthodoxy believes that prayers have pretty much taken the place of korbanot in our time. And I think that they uh, ought to be viewed as a way to, to fill the same purpose of becoming closer, becoming more connected, more bonded. We are commanded to begin to prepare for Pesach 30 days before the festival. Although we're much less than 30 days to go. I think it's a good idea to prepare in advance and begin to think about it. So I wanted to share some early thoughts with you about Pesach. Next week's Vortex will be entirely about Pesach, or pretty much entirely about Pesach. So some preliminary thoughts about Pesach. First of all, in terms of how it stands in the calendar, it is, what it's one, it, what, it is one of what we call the Shalosh Regalim, frequently translated as the three pilgrimage festivals, because they're the festivals on which the uh, Jewish people walked to Jerusalem, At the Slonim brings a much deeper and I think more powerful insight. Um, he says that they're not the three pilgrimage festivals because we walk on our legs. They're actually the three legs on which Judaism stands, the three pillars, which support our religion and in the Hasidic style viewing the great love affair and marriage between the Jewish people and God. And we know that that relationship, you know, is, is a very profound and alluded to in much of what we, of what we do. Uh, the, the love affair between God and the Jewish people, uh, is often used in, is often described in anthropomorphic terms. And so what uh, the Slonoma Rebbe says is that Pesach is the engagement between God and the Jewish people the first stage of the love affair. Shavuot is the wedding of God and the Jewish people, symbolized by the Torah and the Ten Commandments, which are the Ketuvah between us. And then um, Sukkot is the Sheva Brachot, Uh, the seven days of Sukkot are the Sheva Brachot, and Shemini Atzeret is the Yechud, the period of intimacy between God and the Jewish people. As you know, uh, Shemini Atzeret is the only festival that has absolutely no accoutrements, no extras, no symbols just uh, god and the jewish people kind of hanging out together hooking it at, at pesach um, we 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 must focus on the four questions the um the and i want to uh, briefly describe a view of the manishterna that i hope will change your mind and make it more of a compelling considering consideration um most people think of it as the four questions but of course elementary hebrew and elementary english we both lead to the same place, which is you cannot start a question with the word shebachol in Hebrew, and you cannot start a question with the word whereas in English. So once you look at it from basic grammatic analysis standpoint, um, you realise that there is one question, which is Manishtanahalaylazer. Why is this night, or how is this night different from other nights? And then we have four shebachols which are supporting statements. And there's a question about that question, which is why do we ask Manishtana on Pesach, and we don't ask it, for example, on Sukkot. And you could argue that Sukkot is more different than all other festivals, even more so than Pesach is. Because you could say, as you sit down in the sukkah, you could say, why is this night different from all other nights? On all other nights, we can sit in the dining room in the comfort of our home, and tonight we have to sit in this rickety temporary structure And in fact, you should say it for every festival. We have no duplicate festivals. So why why do we only say it for Pesach and not for every other festival? The answer is because every other festival has a single theme. For example, if I would ask you what the essence of Sukkot is, you would presumably answer Ananeha Kavod, the clouds of glory. If I asked you what the essence of Rosh Hashanah is, presumably you would answer and say the essence of the essence is coronating the king, and so on. Pesach is the only festival that has two opposite, irreconcilable, contradictory themes celebrated on the same evening, which is slavery and freedom. And ironically, they are celebrated and symbolized by the very same symbol, which is Matzah. And Matzah starts off the evening being Lechem Oni, the bread of affliction, and by the end of the evening, it has transformed to become the bread of redemption, the safun symbolizing the ultimate redemption, the Gula and the coming of Mashiach. And um, so if that's the case, that in fact, the festival of Pesach is different because it is duothematic as opposed to every other festival, which is monothematic, then what are the four Shebachols doing there? And for that, the answer is, if you're going to make a case before a Beit den, a Jewish court of law, you must bring two witnesses for each side. And so the Shebachols are divided into two sets of four, two sets of two, making a total of four. Two of them support the idea that we are celebrating uh, slavery. And two of the Shebachols are evidence of the fact that we're celebrating freedom. And therefore we have two witnesses for each side having made the case. So now let's get back to the question. The question is, why is this night different from all other knights? We've supported that by explaining why it's different, and we bring witnesses to support that. Where is the answer to the question? And the answer is the very next sentence. That sentence, the very next line, is the answer. We are celebrating the totality of that sentence. We are celebrating the fact that we were slaves in Egypt, and God redeemed us with an outstretched arm. And therefore, the essence of Pesach is understanding the possibility of transformation, which is even a bigger idea than the transformation from slavery to freedom. But in fact, the concept of transformation, the possibility of growth and evolution and becoming something different is the mega message of Pesach, supported by our own experience as going from slavery to freedom, which of course is the story itself. With that, I wish you a Shabbat Shalom, and a happy preparation for Pesach both in the kitchen and in the mind, and with we'll back God willing, next week.